0: Calling all conscious achievers who are seeking more community and connection, I've got an invitation for you. Join me at this year's Summit of Greatness this September 7th through 9th in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio to unleash your true greatness. This is the one time a year that I gather the greatness community together in person for a powerful, transformative weekend. People come from all over the world, and you can expect to hear from inspiring speakers like Inky Johnson... Jaspreet Singh, Vanessa Van Edwards, Jen Sincero, and many more. You'll also be able to dance your heart out to live music, get your body moving with group workouts, and connect with others at our evening socials. So if you're ready to learn, heal, and grow alongside other incredible individuals in the greatness community, then you can learn more at lewishouse.com summit 2023. Make sure to grab your ticket, invite your friends, and I'll see you there. At Pixar, well, we also say that failure is part
1: of the process, it does happen, we don't actually use the terminology very much. Now, there are times when you have something which actually does fail, so we don't avoid it. You have to, like, if something really fails, you say it. But the terminology of making a film is, since we know they all have problems is, we're trying to solve the problem, hmm, that solution didn't work, let's try this.
0: Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro-athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur, and each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. Very excited about our guest today. We have the inspiring Ed Catmull in the house, the co-founder of Pixar Animation and the New York Times bestselling author of Creativity, Inc., overcoming the unseen forces that stand in the way of true inspiration. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: I'm really happy to be here.
0: Um, We were just chatting for the last 30 minutes before this conversation, and I'm fascinated by your story, by your life, and... The things that you've seen, witnessed, overcome and building a business, but also just building a beautiful life of your own. You were surrounded by some of the most brilliant creatives, leaders of industry since you were in college and you essentially grew up with these individuals in chasing after envisioning, manifesting, creating a dream of yours to make animated films, which took you a long time. And then you've now done over 32 films since your time of starting at Pixar, I believe, and Disney, 31, 32 films. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's incredible to know the influence you've had on the lives of, I'm assuming, billions of people who have consumed your stories. So I just want to acknowledge you for the incredible amount of work that you've created, the incredible amount of things that you've had to overcome in building the first animation film to you know building a massive company and all of the 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 unseen forces of thousands of creative individuals coming together the incredible magic that happens with that but also the challenges you've had to overcome as well so i'm so excited you're here and we're talking about one of my favorite moments from um pixar which was toy story three at the end that made me so emotionally captivated, so moved to tears at the end of this movie that I I remember watching it the first time thinking, how am I crying watching a cartoon? Like, how is this making me feel so deeply about my own life and imagining my own life? And it's just amazing what you and the entire team has been able to create. So I'm excited you're here. I'm excited for the book that has the expanded edition to it, which talks about what you learned in the last ten years of leading Pixar and Disney Animation, as well. And um, yeah, welcome again to the show. Very excited. Well, I, I'm I'm very happy to be here. Um, although I
1: I also want to be careful; that I don't take credit for what those other people did, of course
0: so uh but being the leader you know being being co-founder leading the charge and and casting a vision and overseeing the vision is uh a big responsibility
1: well that's that was the fun part yeah was okay how do you have these rather amazing people work well together over a long period of time and it never changes like it's today's problem is not like yesterday's
0: problem (laughs) and it you know it keeps changing right Right. What was the biggest challenge you had in starting that first movie? Because I remember you saying it took about 14 years of time of like saying, when we'll be able to actually create this animation. I think it was 14 years from your prediction. What was the biggest challenge in waiting that long and actually putting out the first movie with toy story?
1: Well, in when I, when I first started, it was like, this was the, uh, the, the goal was to make a film and. I naively thought that it would probably take 10 years. And I very quickly, uh, within two or three years, was disabused of that. Like, that was just wrong. But I didn't replace it with another estimate. It's like, I really didn't know. So it, it was uh, more of, okay, how do I think about the people, how we work together, and, but also what are the economics of it? And what are the technical problems that need to be solved? Because initially, I thought of myself as a researcher, mm. and I was thinking in terms of what are the problems that we need to solve to get there. And then, uh, while doing that, uh, this is when I was in New York Tech, it was after I left Utah. I uh, I also found that um, because I was now over this group, and I was kind of. Well, avoiding actually being the manager of the group. So I was trying to have it both ways. Yeah, I wanted to be the person that was solving the technical problems. And I kind of liked being a leader, to be honest. So uh, I, I, I have these theories about how to manage. and uh, But I also found that I liked figuring out these kinds of problems too. That is, the, the relationships between people and what made them work was really interesting. So I didn't have to give up one over the other, more like a time allocation, but I would say there was a phasing over time, but I stayed pretty deeply involved in technical issues, probably for the next 10 or 15 years. The technical side on the technical side before launching the first film before launching, well, yeah. Before launching the first film. Yes. And, um. because we have this uh, rather amazing group there. Uh, and I, uh, I, had a, I worked on having a culture, like it was open. And we published everything we did. Now, at this point, because we're new in the industry, there were some people who thought, we're pretty close. And I just felt like, well, we're not close at all. So some people were secretive about their breakthroughs. And I just thought, well, breakthroughs, breakthroughs, we're years away. Yeah. So the best thing to do was to publish everything we did and completely participate in this community. And I'll have to say that a, a, lot, of my, a lot of my deepest friends come out of academia because we go to the same conferences. We've known each other for 50 years. But by publishing everything, we also became the place to come to. So we were bringing in the best people. And then finally, Star Wars happened. And when Star Wars happened, then George Lucas was the first person in the film industry with credibility. who thought that technology was going to affect the industry. Like the number one. And believe me, we had tried. And to anybody else, we were utterly and completely irrelevant. It wasn't like they didn't think we could do it. It was they didn't even think about it at all. Wow. So George thought it was going to be possible. So he hired me in because we had this rather amazing group. This is late 70s now? Uh, This would have been, uh, yes, late 70s. Um, Because I joined Lucasfilm in 1979. Okay. And when I left New York Tech um, and I'm trying to create this environment, I realized at that point that half of what I thought was, actually worked really well. It became the foundation of what we we built on. And half of what I thought was a complete crock. didn't work at all. Right. But the most important thing for me was that when... I went to Lucasfilm. Uh, I came away with the insight that about half of what I did was right and half was wrong. I was going to hang on to the things that were right, but I was going to try something new. But I believed that my ratio of right to wrong would probably remain 50-50 and would probably continue to be true for the rest of my life, which I have found to be true. And it isn't as if Have a way of keeping track. I mean, it's you know you don't really know how to put numbers to this, but it felt like the value to me was understanding that I was right or excuse me, I was wrong more than I thought I was. You were wrong more than you thought. Yeah, yeah. So um, at Lucasfilm now, it's a new educational opportunity, and uh, George wanted to bring technology into film editing uh, to digital audio and into computer graphics. And now it's another educational opportunity because now you've got three customer groups, one of whom hated what we were doing. They didn't like the idea So these are the video editors. Now George knew video editing. He's the one that wanted it, but the person they put in charge of doing it, thought it was a terrible idea. Um, So, okay, so that did not end well, even though we did something which was way advanced or anything else in the industry, we didn't have a customer who wanted to use it. The digital audio, had a guy who loved the idea and and basically worked with this really well. But the third group was ILM and ILM was neutral. Mm. Their view was. Um, Well, your resolution is too low, but if you ever get to be good enough to be used in the films, we'll use it. Uh So now we're the driving force. Our goal is to meet their needs, to be good enough for what they were doing because they were the best in the industry. And if we could make them happy, then we would have succeeded. So we became the driving force, nobody else. That was our motivation. Right. And uh, so, th- like, those were those the kinds of lessons. And the other lesson was that uh, as a representative of the Lucasfilm, I got to visit all these different companies supercomputer companies, Cray, CDC, companies that most people don't uh, either haven't heard of or don't remember. Uh, and also the emerging workstation companies. And they wanted to sell the Lucasfilm. So I can go in and talk with the leaders of the companies because they wanted to sell the Lucasfilm because Star Wars was sexy. Yes. And um, for lunch or for dinner, I'd meet with the engineers because they knew that I was actually a real technical person. And what I found was at every one of these visits, I got two different views of a company in the same day. And I became aware that In a lot of companies, there was like a class structure, not a term they would use. People would never say, well, we're first class here. There are people who say we're treated as second class, okay? But you can see this going on in companies. And I remember thinking, this can't be good. So as we continue to grow, and at some point we began to bring in artists, especially when we became Pixar, then the one thing that was clear to me is we needed to make sure that we didn't have a notion of first class and second class, that we really had to make sure right from the beginning that we gave the message of valuing everybody.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that isn't the same thing as saying that everybody is the same. Yeah, They're not. Uh, they have different skills, different capabilities, and so forth. But the notion that some people are better than others or in different class, not a good thing. So the basic principle was um, that you, you actually make the assumption that everybody can be better. Not the same, but everybody can be better. And that that is not a high-risk proposition. Mm-hmm. It is worth Doing so, we basically we were learning as we were going through this, and then we got to the point where uh, George, you know, be, because he got divorced and uh, uh, his cash position was now completely different, then uh, he needed to sell us. So this is a year-long stressful period for us, and so. A very stressful period but part of that was by this time we had reached a level of of uh, quality because we had built some hardware in order to do high quality images that uh that ilm was starting to use what we had and so part of the deal as we spun out was they had the rights to use the software that we had and they used it in the film, I think the the first major one was the abyss. Although we had done something earlier for them, like for Star Trek, there was that thing where you flew over the planet and it turned lifelike. Sure. So we'd done a couple of things for them, but, um, uh, I found somebody to help run the graphics group. We were never part of Island, but they needed somebody in Island. as they started that transition to digital technology. Um, so. We um, we
0: were acquired by Steve Jobs. Wow. What year was this now? This would be 1986. 1986, Steve Jobs acquires you. And you'd known Steve before then. Well, I I met him once, and
1: uh, and then he just disappeared at the time we were now starting to get sold. Now, I didn't know why he disappeared. Later, of course, I learned the reason was he was in this internal struggle, which resulted in him being uh removed at apple so this was basically a public humiliation yes. for steve and it, it largely had to do with the way he related with people so uh that's kind of the mythology around steve and i knew steve when he was like this that is his behavior around people was not empathetic and uh that kind of behavior is, is frankly kind of it's interesting and people like to tell stories about it and write about it. It's sort of like the bad boy behavior. Um, and it's unfortunate because it doesn't capture the arc of Steve's life, which is far more interesting and impactful. Instead, the focus on the outside, of whether it was movies or writing about him or articles, was about a period in his life. And that was a period in which he was kicked out of Apple. He started Next Computer. And Next, he did some brilliant things like his software choices, it turns out, were, were fundamentally, ultimately changed not only Next, but later Apple. Uh, his hardware choices were questionable. And he made some poor business choices. Sure. And, and and choices in which he thought these were really big wins. But I'm I was looking at them and thinking, oh, this cannot
0: be a good idea. Right, right, right. But he bought you guys, he bought Pixar.
1: So then then he bought Pixar after he got them. So we knew Steve when he was like that, but we didn't have any choice. Like we'd been spending a year this was an utter disaster. I mean, it's a long story itself, sure, sure. Of like the things he went through. But
0: the, the end result was this: the Steve uh, acquired us when he acquired you guys. Did you were you excited or were you more nervous based on his personality from the past?
1: Well, we were excited to keep alive and keep going. So that was the excitement part, the dream. Yes, and and Steve is like he is. Um, I mean, for us. Uh, and, And varied. I had a great relationship with Steve. So I think I worked for Steve longer than anybody else. Wow. And I never had an argument with Steve. Never? Never. Wow. We disagreed at times, but we never had an argument.
0: place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: it's one thing falling in love with a house picturing yourself moving in and calling it home and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating mortgage lenders and finding the budget that works best for you an agent who's a realtor can make understanding that world easier Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.
1: And and what and my style with Steve was that if I didn't agree with him, uh, first of all, I, I knew, I was self-aware enough to know I absolutely could not think as fast as he could. <laughs> right. I mean, he's really smart.
0: You're not gonna debate him, you are not gonna jump in, yet. Yeah.
1: yeah, so, I mean, there are people who are, who actually can push back with him and argue with him successfully. So there's something that's not known about Steve, but he actually values people that push back on him. But I can't think that fast. So instead, he'd shoot down what I say, and then I would say, well, let me get back to that. And I'd wait a week. So I'd think about my next sentence. Right, for a week. For a week. And then I would give it to him and he'd shoot it down. Let me get back to you. So this might go on for weeks. In the couple of cases, it went on for months. And there'd be one of three outcomes. I'd say each one was about equally likely. One of them was we reach a point when I would say, oh, I see what you're saying. You're right. And that ends it about a third of the time he would say, okay, got it. You're right. End of discussion. It's just like, you just bought what I said and that was it. it just, I didn't explain it very well the first time. Sure. Um, and the, and one of the reasons I would do this is, uh, I never confuse the personal power that somebody might have or their position with what was right. So it, it didn't matter if somebody was a better debater or, or could think faster than I could or they were in a in a senior position. As I didn't mean they were right. So it just meant that I couldn't argue at the same rate. So uh, uh, I just didn't give up as long as I knew that I was right. And if I wasn't right, then I would change. So the other third of the time is we didn't reach a conclusion. So in that third... I just did what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Steve was okay with it mm. because we had discussed it. Uh, and that's how it worked. Oh, interesting. For all those years. How, how many years did you work with him? Uh, well, the uh, we, he acquired us at that time. We were then a public company. So that we were a public company until we were acquired by Disney. And then at Disney, uh, the terms of it was that we had the, the equivalent of a board of directors we're just now a group within disney uh and i had a dual report to uh, bob eiger and to the uh, uh the head of the studio Well, wow. and um but we had this uh steering committee and so this steering committee was john steve and me and then bob eiger the chair of the studio and the CFO of the company. Well, so like, like every month to begin with and it slowly. Sure. got with there. but now this group would, would come in and they were like our board of directors. So that continued up until the end of his life.
0: How many years total time kind of that range is that when you first well,
1: from 86 and I forget what
0: year he died. Wow. To then Tanner, would, I think her. Yeah. Something like something, that. Yeah. Okay. So the so 30 something years. Yeah. Roughly, yeah. It's amazing. Um, what were the biggest, three biggest lessons you learned from observing Steve Jobs, from communicating with him, and from the way he left the world?
1: Well, um, in, the, in the case of like, what are the lessons? One of them, which he understood intuitively, uh, which was that when you're wrong, you change. Now, I mean, there's different ways of phrasing and it's like th- that there's no upside in being wrong and some people think they need to win the argument. And Steve actually understood that was never the point. It was, you want to get to the truth quickly. And, but he also understood that, um, at an intuitive level that because of the power based personality, it actually could distort the process and uh and that was part of his learning as he went through this was the recognizing what was him recognizing that his his abilities his like superpowers could actually uh, uh get in the way of him finding out things so uh, i'll give a couple examples one of them which is which would surprise people was that uh, we had a board of directors because in 1995. At the end, we went public, and this is a this is like a big public offering. We were the second largest IPO of 1995, only after
0: Netscape. And when did Toy Story come out?
1: In 95. 95. So we went public one week afterwards. Wow. So when we were doing the road trip, and part of the road trip of showing the movie was well, well actually, it wasn't showing the movie. It was telling people that we had a new technology that was going to change filmmaking. So now it's a complete confidence this film is going to be a big success. Wow. But he could say to them, nobody else can do this. There isn't anything like it. It's going to change the industry. And we've got the people that 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 changed the technology, and they're doing the content. So that's what this company is. But we don't, we're not going to go public until after the movie comes out, because we think that we should show you how big this is before we go public. Smart. So that was what we did for the few months leading up to going public. You were
0: telling a story about the story.
1: Yes. Wow. And that
0: we were going to prove
1: it. And you guys did. And we did. You proved it big.
0: So What was that first week like? Toy Story launches, box office, and then you go public the next week later. What was that week like? Uh, It was surreal. What were the numbers of the box office and then going public?
1: Well, interestingly enough, what I remember at the time, because our whole group at the time would go to our computer graphics conference, which is SIGGRAPH, and for the most part, it's showing the newest technology. And we we believed firmly, because we made short films and they were actually uh, you know, Academy Award-winning short films and and uh, they're quite impactful, but they're short. And uh, people would always pay attention on the outside to the technology. So when the film came out, the biggest question that we had, and everybody was looking for it, and all of the technology people were looking for it, was what are the reviewers going to pay attention to? And what we found was that almost every review, there was at most one or two sentences about the new technology, and the rest of the review was about the movie. Wow. And that, for all of us, was like, that's the win. It, did, it wasn't about the technology. It was about being a great movie. Yes. And if we had done that, and we, we got people to buy into this world and watch it and feel it, then that was the win. And everybody understood it at every level in the company. Wow. And so that's what I remember, was reading those things to find out whether or not we had really accomplished what we wanted to do.
0: It's incredible. I mean, what I'm curious about is how were you able to tap into the human mind and create emotional connections with audiences through these animations. How was this studied and executed for the last 30 years at such a high level? And how did you do that for that first movie?
1: Well, I, I will say that for the first movie, uh, there was, uh, it's one of those things where there is some luck in that group that, that first came in, um, we had always in the history of both at New York tech and then at Lucasfilm and then at Pixar was to say, we really want to hire the very best. And so I would say, well, we want to hire people who are smarter than I am. And, um, and I I know other people say that, but because like, like, what does that even mean? But it means that you don't want to be threatened by the people that you hire and, and they just have to have these extraordinary skills. And, uh, so when we, br- when we were building out our, our technical group, I mean, they, they were just really good. I mean, they were, they hadn't passed me in terms of their understanding of, of the technology. Uh, and John understood that too. So when he did his first hires, uh, as the first person he hired was, uh, Andrew Stanton. And then the second was Pete Doctor, And then, uh, Joe Ranf came in and then we brought in really to be an editor, except he turns out to have been this is like one of the best storytellers ever is Lee Unkrich. So uh, this is this amazing group of people that came together. And uh, now part of that was we really had established a culture where that this was the right thing to do is you aren't bringing in you weren't even thinking about them as, oh, who, okay, who's going to be second to me? It's like, okay, who, who's really good? And it turns out that Andrew was, had this extraordinarily structural sense. Of, we didn't know that. Way. Right, right. And just like, it emerged because of the challenge. And Pete Doctor had this this incredible emotional core. Well. And still does. I mean, so he, you know, he went on to do Up, uh, inside out it, you know it's like like getting the emotion right it's like who he is and uh lee has this uh actually phenomenal filmmaking sense of okay we're doing this but you really have to get all these pieces right and then the 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 person that was sharon callahan initially who was uh thinking about the lighting and People aren't often aware of this, but the lighting uh, is really important for conveying the emotions. And then the artist that we had, Ralph Eggleston, had a color palette for the movie because it turns out the basic color changed throughout the movie and it's this subtle thing that's affecting your perceptions. Wow. So like, this is this amazing group of people and the, the interesting thing about it was that none of these people had ever made a feature film before in their life. Oh, my goodness. So we hadn't used computer graphics, but they also hadn't done a, a 2D film. They hadn't done any film. So It's unbelievable. Everybody is a beginner.
0: They all had to figure it out. And you're leading them. Yeah. How, I mean, how do you know... I mean, yeah, the emotional, uh, the, the emotions you're able to pull out of people, you know, in these films through, you're a technology guy, but through the tech, through the art, through the color, through the lighting, through the sound design and the music, through the tonality of the voice actors and bringing it all together to create a cohesive emotional story is unbelievable how you guys did this. And well, I can continue to do it, but how did you? know how to put it all together
1: well I I I mean the way I thought at the time was is, is how do you have a group that works together because I'm not a filmmaker and I I would you know over time we developed a way of of helping people which ended up being called the brain trust but my view was when I went to these meetings was How do we make sure this group works together? Like, what are the things that make it work together? What takes them off the rails? So it was to work out some some principles for that. And it's fun to give notes to movie, but the truth was there's only one movie in all those movies that I gave a note that I felt so strongly about that I had to push really hard to get it in there. What was that? It was in Monsters Incorporated. What was the note? Well, the note was... At one point near the end, the monster, Sully has to scare this dummy, which is being videoed, that's like a training video, and uh, you may recall that when he does this, he then looks up and he sees that the girl's right there and he scares the bejesus out of this little girl, mm-hmm. the one he loves, and he didn't mean to do it. But the original thing, what she saw was that she saw him on the monitor. So I looked at this, and I said, you can't do this because anybody that has a child remembers there are times when they may have done something that, that where their child was, was in danger, either because of themselves or it happened to them. And when that happens, it sears into your soul, and you never forget it for as long as you live. Wow. And that for Sully, he needs to see that he was the cause of the thing that scared her, that it was not good enough to have her see it by the monitor. So, and so there's some pushback on it. And, you know, I talked with Andrew, and so Andrew said, no, this is actually critical to the film. I just felt so, oh, good. But that's it. Right. And so I can I look at it. Well, I did one at least. One
0: note in thirty movies. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh, but with, uh, but that wasn't my job. Yeah, they're the filmmakers. It wasn't my job. It was to say, okay, is this good working well together? Why is it derailing? When does it go well? When doesn't it go well? And so that was the whole time. And then when Jim Morris came in. Initially over, uh, he came as producer and then he was our head of production and then he was our general manager and then he became the president. Uh, it was like, we're both like, you know, we're in there just looking at the process and what well, works, what doesn't work, you're right. just evolving
0: it. Right. So over time. I mean, it's, you, you got pretty animated during this, uh, retelling a story with Monsters Inc. What movie left you with the deepest amount of emotion when you watched it? after it came out or in the process of making it, what was the the movie that captivated you the most? I'm sure that's hard to say which one you liked the most, but was there a moment in a movie that really touched you in a way based on your own life experience different than the other emotional moments in movies?
1: Well, it was, um, uh, it's a little hard to say because the, any emotion in a movie connects to, watching the people go through this. So I don't, I can't even watch a movie in the same way that others do, because I'm actually seeing what took place.
0: The Uh, creators, the producers, the everything. That's right.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're just, you know, these films all at the beginning have problems. It's just one thing after another. And we go through multiple steps and with different ways of, of trying to fix the problems. And in fact, it was one of the things I was I, I wanted to like clarify. W- with the the expanded edition of the book was that, uh, you know, I I talked a fair amount about, um, you know, failure, and how it is part of the process. But I realized that we it doesn't actually capture what takes place because. We all know that we learn from failures and in fact, failure is kind of popular to talk about nowadays about a way of learning. The reality is, is that we have two meanings to failure, which are deeply built into us. So there's one meaning, which is that we know that we've had failures and we learn from them and it's part of the process of learning. The other meaning is the one that we got in school. And that is, if you fail a class, it's because you screwed up, you didn't work hard enough, uh, or you're dumb. Right. None of those are good meanings. Right. All right. Now, you you go out into business, bridges fail, relationships fail, uh, companies fail. And in politics and business, failures are used as bludgeons with which to beat opponents. There is real and palpable fear behind failure all right so if we talk about failure then it is almost possible for most people to emotionally disconnect those two concepts and so i realized that since that's what i observed that at pixar well we also say that failure is part of the process. It does happen. Yes. We don't actually use the terminology very much. Now, there are times when you have something which actually does fail, so we don't avoid it. You have to, like, if something really fails, you say it. But the terminology of making a film is, since we know they all have problems, is we're trying to solve the problem. Hmm. That solution didn't work. Let's try this. So the iterative process is, we're trying it. Let's try this. And uh, as long as the team is working well together, even if they haven't solved the problem, if they're working well together, we say, okay, keep going. It's a tough problem. And, uh, and they know that. They know we have their back. And, uh, the, and the only thing, the, the only real clue we have that we have to do a major change is if the crew begins to lose the confidence that a leader can actually get them there. They may like the leader, and this is not, uh, you know, I like, I, you know, I don't like them. It's, it's more like, I, I just don't have the confidence we're going to get there. And those things start to build, so we are aware of some of them because people will come and talk about some of the problems they've got. So you then start off, how do we help the person? How do we supplement them? Could we add somebody to the team, To remove somebody? What are the things we can do behind the scene to help them? And if we get to the point where we can't do it, then we'll do a bigger change, and we essentially have failed. And it's tough because we picked the person to be the failure because we believe they can do it, because they're very good. So for them, it's actually a very difficult
0: process to go through. And we've only had
1: a couple of the the directors who could survive this and stay with the company. And they're very valuable. And those who have stayed were actually incredible contributors, but it's emotionally hard for them to go through. Right. Um, but one of those was we uh was, was the, with Ratatouille, mm-hmm. and the man who designed it conceived to the idea of of a lovely man. He's really very good. And in fact, the look of the film that you see came from this guy. Wow. But it, the film was stuck and they couldn't get out of it. And so at that point, due to other reasons that were of you know, uh, Brad Bird had finished mission, they Miss impossible. <laughs> he did that later. Sure. He, he had actually finished, uh, the Incredibles. Uh-huh. So he asked him to take it
0: on. Interesting. And now, when the movie is stuck, do you mean it's stuck in the beginning stages, or it's in post production, or it's like the story needs it's to a adjust? The story is so stuck. the story is not complete yet.
1: That's right. So
0: you've got Let the me- movie story, but you're like, well, we need changes here, or it's not really fully emotionally connecting, or the journey doesn't work. Is that what you mean? Yes. But in the meantime, we're building the models. We can call the you're, you're building the the characters, the, the characters, the backgrounds, the animation. You're building it without the right the story complete.
1: That's right. Wow. So, and there are pieces of it that we think are working, so we'll start to make them. Because you can't make the whole thing at the ends. You need to start to make it. You make like one scene. you like, we like
0: this part. We think this will work. Yeah, we
1: think it's gonna, you're right. Maybe it's gonna work. We might be wrong. So sometimes you may throw that away. Really? That's expensive. It's kind
0: of like shooting uh, a scene that you don't use, but you're got a thousand people animating something and working on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's to try things you figure them out sure because what is the lighting what's the character going to look like how is this going to to work so they're doing all this work but the, you can't go too you can't get too far ahead of yourself get on the story complete yeah so it's it's a, a tricking balance but it's always a tricking balance yeah you know life is a tricking balance <laughs> so uh, the uh, in this case uh, you know the The characters look beautiful, everything's gorgeous about it. It's not working. And there are a few things that are just fundamentally wrong. One of them was that originally that chef, the the chef Gusto, was alive throughout the whole movie. Okay. And he kind of sold his soul. He was actually a highly rated chef. But he was making money because of advertising and uh, using his name to sell products. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so, and he was consulting on the movie. Is that right? Or the the chef that was cons-
1: no the chef in the movie? Gotcha. The chef gotcha. in the was a guy. guy. He was yeah, alive. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Because there was a consultant. I think I saw a photo over here of like a consultant showing you how to make. Oh, that's separate. That's, that's separate. that's gotcha. our,
1: that's our, the research we do. Gotcha. Like we're trying to learn what takes place. Sure, but the chef it's based on. He's alive. Uh. Well, no, no. We we made up a chef. Got it. Gusto. Yes. And he's this fat guy, and he's kind of lost his way. And then there's this rat that wants to cook, who just happens to end up being in his kitchen. Yes. And the, because of the passion of the rat, then it actually causes the ch- chef to realize he went down the wrong path. Uh, so now you've got this problem throughout a lot of the movie is is this movie about the the rat who wants to cook with that passion, or is it a redemption story for the chef who has lost his way? Mm -hmm. And then the other problem that they were wrestling with was that the rat has a family. The rat doesn't talk to humans. So he's going through, he's meeting people and learning things in the restaurant, but because he can't talk, you don't know what he's thinking. And then he goes back to his family and he explains what he just went through. But you just saw this when you're watching a movie, you just saw this. So now it brings the movie to a dead halt because he's explaining to them the things that you just saw. That's not good for filmmaking. Mm. So Brad Bird enters the picture. Brad looks at it, and the first thing he does after working with a good friend of a, his who is a good screenwriter, they kill the chef. Mm. So the chef died for some reason, and, but he's still on these TV programs, and because he's been teaching on whatever the channel was, and the rat's inspired by him. But because the, the chef is dead, and Remy knows the chef is dead then the chef is now a figment of his imagination. Mm-hmm. So what this means is that this figment of his imagination can sort of pop up and he's interacting with what he thinks the chef with is. With him or tell him yes. So it answers, it takes care of two huge problems. One of them is we now know who the movie's about. It's about the rat that wants to cook. So problem number one is solved. And the second one was because he cannot talk to the, the figment of his imagination and it doesn't feel unnatural because it's not like he's talking to a ghost. He's actually, you know that he's talking to himself or if it's clear. So the uh, that means that he doesn't need to go back and explain anything to his family so you know what he's thinking at the time. So now the pacing starts to work. Now, that's the brilliance of Brad Bird is to come in and say, oh, here's what we're going to do for good storytelling at every step of the way. And so now this film, which had these interesting elements about it, turns into something which is brilliant. And then Brad has has, has his own take about art and what it means to critique art and its impact of it. And he puts this in the movie because you're watching this movie thinking, well, like, where's it going? Because a rat can never really run a restaurant in Paris. Like, is it going to happen? So that's what makes it hard. So he takes this hard concept and he turns it into this thing at the end, which is profound. Mm. And then when the audience sees it, it's like, oh, I didn't see this coming. And this is beautiful. So what i remember about the movies is actually going into the audiences because i remember we went we had the, the big opening in Paris. wow
0: it's cool
1: and i would would get to that moment and what i would do is i would turn around and look at the audience and that was the rewarding part
0: as they're watching the final scenes or the whole movie no
1: it's, it's, it's that final scene yeah well, i'd look at them and they were like this he didn't see it coming. That's incredible, and it was. That's what it was. It was incredible,
0: and then like because the, so that's rewarding when something like that happened. And uh, was there ever a time you you cried in your own watching your own premiere?
1: Oh, I I well, I did for because of Toy movie. Story
0: three really for Toy Story three, and I did for Coco. Oh my gosh, that's my favorite movie. Coco's. A, I've got a Mexican girlfriend, and so. Uh, her whole family is from Mexico and you know, just whenever they come over to her house, it feels like I'm in cocoa in America. And whenever I go to Mexico, it feels like I'm in cocoa. So for me, that's one of my favorite movies of all movies. It's incredible. Well, that was,
1: you know, it was uh Lee Unkrich. It actually created a problem because it was so good that <laughs> afterwards, Lee says, Where do I go from here? It was unbelievable. Uh, but uh, you cried in cocoa. And incidentally, he, he, directed both of those films.
0: Wow. You cried in cocoa. Oh yeah. What part made you? Well,
1: it was, um, uh, th- the thing about any good movie of this sort or the kind of movies that we try to tell is that you are trying to connect to our own personal emotions, but you're also trying to bring in something new and original Just to be honest. There's unfortunately sort of this bias against the Mexican culture because what do people hear about on the news in terms of immigration or various things at the border? But they don't represent Mexico, and they don't represent what takes place, like in southern Mexico, with you know the Day of the Dead. I mean, if you say the Day of the Dead in America, it's like oh, it's kind of on, you know, the Day of the Dead. Um, so. But it means something entirely different there. It's like the respect for the people that came before us. That's what it's about. So, and you actually get that in the movie. So they went down into the villages in in southern Mexico, and they spent a lot of time wow. getting to know the people, talking with them. Uh, we had a a group in california they were like mexican advisors because we wanted to get it right and essentially you've got these people from north america going down into to mexico i am mean, sure they're in north america too so you got people uh you know from, from america going down well how are they going to tell that story so they work really hard to try to capture that The say it was true with uh, like moana it's like another you great in, movie incredible and you you actually try to get something from the culture because you don't want to work off the biases. Right. You don't want to work off of what other people are thinking. And, uh, and and the same was true with Ratatouille. It's like, you know, we all know cooking in the home. We watched our parents cook or we cook. We watched the cooking channel. You can see the chefs in the kitchen. But what is it like to actually be in a highly rated fancy restaurant in any place? What's the culture like? We don't know that. So for for, for Ratatouille, they went into the, into those restaurants and got to know them. And they also were given some work. Like at the French Laundry, they actually spent time in the kitchen and they were given jobs to do. Wow. So they were capturing that. Now what's interesting about it is that is even though we know a lot about cooking, we don't know whether or not what they're saying in the kitchen, the way they're acting is true, All right? we just don't know. But they sense that it is. If you've actually done your research and you put that in the film, then they, there's something that is conveyed to people Because you took the time to find out something new and original. So in the case of of Coco, it was to go down and find out how do they feel about it? What are they doing? What are they thinking? And, uh, I remember this is when the movie came out because we went down to the, the premiere and one of the things I appreciate is that when Americans make movies about Mexico, they don't know the difference between the the Mexican broad brimmed hat and the Spanish one. So they like to interchange them. But in Mexico, they know. So they went down there, and they wanted to get those details right. And most of the audiences, they wouldn't know. But they felt
0: like they needed to have the people who would know know that it was right. Sure. What was, what was part of the movie then? emotionally captivated you the most in Coco.
1: Well, it was, I mean, because the intent was, it actually is the respect for these people that came before Like, and because it was real, you know, he'd learned something. He figured out something about the people that came before him. He also felt like he was, he was able to fix some, um, uh, some things that were wrong. Um, but it was it, it was also emotional for me for a couple of other reasons too uh, one is in the storytelling was that uh, initially Lee was going to make this as Pixar's first musical because Pixar really doesn't have musicals in their DNA Disney does and Pixar doesn't but and one of the things I want to make sure is that we didn't try to make one studio like the other we also weren't trying to trying to say, you have to be different. So they had to evolve in their own ones, in their own way. So if, if one wants to make a musical, then they can. And at Pixar, if they want to make a musical, they can. Um, and so Lou was going to be the first person to do that. So we got these brilliant two people who also had had done something down at, at So I mean, they were you know, good and close, and we worked with them before, and so they wrote the first song for his movie, which is called "Remember Me." Incredible. And so, but as a filmmaker, he said, "Okay, that's thematic for the movie." So now he he builds a story using this song throughout it. All right, so it's now a key element of. The- Where did it come from? Why was it written? And the notion was that, you know, if his great grandma dies, that the last person, she's the last person who will know where the song came from. And she's got.
0: Oh my God, she remembers it.
1: She's got (laughs) Alzheimer. It's so emotional, actually. I know. Uh, But by playing it, and she remembers. It actually gives him life. So, wow. Yeah. It's seeing that and, and conveying that, that. That's beautiful. Makes it's powerful. powerful. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about the story, which is a separate thing, was like, how did he get started? So, one of the things we figured out, this is very early on in Pixar, uh, when we started our second, movie well the first the second was was bug's life but the third one was going to be a sequel no sequel had ever been successful right that uh, they an animated sequel had ever been successful so the, the thought was originally by disney was that this is going to be a direct video so we start to make it but right away it's clear that the people working on it at pixar are very upset because to to work on a sequel at a studio where we end up where we want to have the highest standard of quality means that we're working on something where the expectations is much lower. We don't want to do something where there are low expectations. We want there to be we want it to be, you know, at high level. So Disney agreed to that. So we then started to make this film. And we frankly had a problems, several problems with it, because we were building on some assumptions that we got from the first film. Because the first film had been built knowing nothing, but we drew some conclusions from it, and some of the conclusions we drew from it were not correct. So we built or started the sequel based on those assumptions only to find that we were wrong. And we just uncovered a bunch of things to to question or challenge our original ideas. So um uh, and in the process of doing that we had to restart the movie really late in the game and remake it. It was like a brutal, brutal effort to remake this movie. We had to make it eight months, starting from wow. scratch almost. Wow. Oh yeah, it was it was a nightmare. We had like a third of our people injured with RSI and Oh man. And uh but one of the things that came out of that was the realization that the way we were starting films is we were trying to do what other studios do, which was to have a development department looking for good scripts. And so, our th- our thought was, why are we trying to copy the model of other studios? First of all, the success rate of films of other studios isn't very high. Low, yeah. So, we said let's do it a different way so what we did was we're going to pick somebody who we think can direct a feature film they and then we're going to say to them pick three ideas to develop so now the reason we say three is instead of saying pick an idea that you want to make into a film well what happens to all of us when you do something tough or in school or something like that? You start to bang your head against, well, you get stuck. So the reason we said three was why it is, is that if you get stuck, you can switch to a different idea. Right. So they'd have an artist, and at some point they may have a writer come in and work with them. So it's like a really small team spending a year, and they some help of the development department. We still have the development department, but they were, no longer, they were no longer looking for scripts to turn into movies. Their job was to help support this small group. So they read scripts, but all they were looking for was good writers who could join the team, but we never made anybody else's script. We always- Started from scratch. Started from scratch. Wow. So they would then spend that year going back and forth between their three ideas. Hmm. And at the end of the year, they would come in, you know, the two or three people who were have the leaders over this, and they would pitch it to the creative leadership of the company, say some of the other directors. So there may be like 10, 12 people in the room. These three ideas. The three ideas. And the way this works is there's a story room, uh, which the whole there's a table in the middle. And so essentially you can hold like 12 people in the room and there are two long walls and there's storyboards along the wall and they would cover them up. So they put the material, the conceptual ideas for the film on the wall. And they'd take like 20, 25 minutes, present the idea. then would be a brief discussion on it. And then we, then we'd go through the three films. Now the process started and they all did this, even though they've been on the other side, like they have been on the, the creative leadership side, and then there'd be time when they'd paste their ideas. Um, and they'd all start saying the same thing. They would say, I love all three ideas equally. (laughs) Right. It doesn't matter to me which one you pick. Now it's not true. Um, they do like one better. And the debate when they leave the room is not which is the best idea to make in the film. It is which one do they really want to make? And I think we've always called it right because we'd come back and they'd go, yes! I was hoping you'd pick that one. Sure. But in the case of Coco, Pete came in and he pitched an idea which is related to an idea that he pitched before he did Toy Story 3 and then when we got when we had the ability to make Toy Story 3 he was asked to direct it, and so he switched over along with the writer he worked with um Michael Arndt brilliant uh, brilliant writer and they developed a good relationship um so they were so so basically Lee was pitching that idea they originally had then he pitched his second idea, which was to be a full-on musical, that interesting concept, challenging concept. And then the two walls were up, so then we go into the other room. So he opened the door, and when we open the door, um, the table, the ceiling, both walls and the end wall are filled with Mexican artwork. Really? So... There isn't a single word that's said and everybody
0: knows which movie we're making. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a poster bozo of the first two, but this one is a whole experience. That's right. You walked into Cocoa World.
1: That's right. You walk into Cocoa World. Wow. Now, the interesting part, which this is the way it works, is the final movie actually was very little like that first thing.
0: Mm.
1: It didn't matter. Right. Because you start off with a concept. You're going to learn something. <laughs> the whole idea of all these trips to Mexico yeah. was to learn something because everything else is sort of based on, you know, kind of things you knew. Right. Because you're interested stereotypes, in it, Stereotypes. Stereotypes yeah. and so forth. So you expect it to change pretty dramatically in the process of doing it.
0: So when he pitched Coco, um, and you guys went back and decided, like, okay, this is the movie we're, we're choosing of these three was there a debate, or was everyone just like, "Oh, we know he's the most passionate about this idea. Let's run him. Walk, let's let him run with the thing he's most passionate about."
1: Uh, well, I think in that case, there were there probably wasn't any debate. Mm. I would say with others, there is some question about okay, which which one is it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the uh, but that and that's probably more than normal. Like there'd be a little debate about it. Um, right. and also not everybody goes through the process. Like if, if Andrew Stanton says he wants to make something, it's like, okay, Andrew, you can make
0: whatever you want.